0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone, I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today, we have an awesome interview with a community industry veteran, Vanessa Paik, who's coming to us from Australia. She's been building the community industry and ecosystem in Australia for many, many years. She's the founder of Australian Community Managers, of the Swarm Conference, of PeerSense. She's consulted with government organizations, tons and tons of businesses. She's a published academic. She dives deep into a lot of really interesting community topics, around governance. How do you set up your community with the proper rules and guidelines? But as we talk about in this interview, governance is so much more than just that. It's really about understanding where do you find and how do you assign value in a community? How do you respond when someone does something bad in a community, but also how do you respond when someone does something good? How do you reward them? How do you reinforce those behaviors? So we dive deep into what community governance looks like. And if you're just building out your governance program for the first time, she shares what your MVP governance program should look like. We also talk about AI and uh, how community is becoming more and more automated, how more tools are helping us Manage these kind of manual processes that we have to do to build community to better understand our community to be able to moderate our communities more efficiently Vanessa has been doing this work for a very very long time and is such a wealth of knowledge you're going to really enjoy some of the more advanced level topics that we have in this discussion and we ask a really interesting question of is there going to be a day soon where a community can be entirely built by robots with no human facilitation, right? A robot facilitating the interaction amongst a group of people to actually build a healthy community. You'll find out what her answer is in this episode. Let's dive in. And we're off. Vanessa, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, David. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm very excited for our chat. We've known each other a long time. We got to hang out in Melbourne A while ago, on my visit there, and chat about all things community and just found like a counterpart in each other, I think, working in similar worlds. You've been building the community industry in Australia for many years, over 10 years. You just told me that you're coming up on your 10 year reunion for Swarm, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we've been running our Swarm Conference, which is kind of the annual conference of our own Australian Community Managers Network. And that's been around, yeah, 10 years this year. So pretty epic. And it's a really great opportunity to reflect on as you do as a community, sort of like a ritual, where you've been, where you're going, where you're at, all the things that have changed and all the things that haven't changed across that decade.
0: I mean, I don't know about you, but even the last year or two, I think we've seen like exponential evolution of the industry compared to the last 20 years of this kind of industry.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's almost as though we've hit our own kind of Moore's Law kind of curve or something. (laughs) The interest level has certainly stepped up a notch, uh, helped along by the challenges of the pandemic and organizations needing to work remotely, um, wanting to create different digital and hybrid experiences for consumers, for partners, things like that, and for their own own employees and staff as well. So suddenly people, I think, have a greater appreciation and acute appreciation for the role that technology can play in connection, in belonging, in bridging some of those gaps. So yeah, there's been a real renaissance of a sort, I would say, in mm. community. Um, I think it remains to be seen how much of it sticks and in which ways. But that's sure. that's really interesting and obviously really exciting for us as practitioners.
0: Yeah, agreed. And that's cool. So you're seeing that in Australia as well, this kind of renaissance and this growth of the industry?
1: Yeah, we are. I'd say particularly in the internal space, so organizations that have obviously had to make that shift to remote work. In Australia, we've faced quite a lot of lockdowns through the pandemic. It has allowed us to keep the situation under relative control comparatively, but it has meant that for most of the country have been relegated to remote dispersed work, hybrid working for the better part of 12 to 18 months now and most inclined to stay that way. So it's about how they can use technology to kind of create internal communities for themselves as well, you know. And so I've had a lot of questions thrown at me around, you know, how do you create a digital culture? How do you drive constructive engagement and collaboration online? All the things that we do and understand often in our community building context are now being applied in a different kind of way within the workplace. So we're seeing that growth here for sure. And I think with other businesses and brands as well, but perhaps to a slightly lesser
0: extent. Yeah, it's funny to see all these companies now like, wait, we need to figure out how to build an online community amongst our team. If only there were People who knew how to do that.
1: If only that was a thing, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Where are we going to find that?
1: And I th- What's been really interesting, and I don't know if you've seen this too, is that there's been a rush to the tools, which is understandable.
0: It's where people start a lot of the time.
1: We are very sort of techno-deterministic and we're like, yeah, yeah, we'll get the tools. So I hear from people all the time and say, look, you know, I went out, like, I've got a platform where I plugged in Slack and I did this and I did that and nothing's happening. People aren't engaging. We're still struggling. We feel disconnected. Why is that so? We've got the tools. Isn't that enough? And obviously, you know they haven't really thought about how to design that engagement, to design the conditions for engagement, and of course, being able to steward that through community leadership and community management.
0: Yeah, people just tend to start with the tools in mind. they start with kind of the structure before the strategy, and then I think it's part of a challenge that we're seeing in the industry right now of there's also a lot of tools coming out that are making the barrier to entry much lower. You're seeing tools that are really great right out of the box. Like you can spin up an incredible looking community very quickly today. And so whether that's on Discord or Circle or Slack or, you know, any of these tools, Facebook groups, some of the more owned community platforms as well, like Circle or Disciple or things that are like out of the box very good, it makes the barrier to entry a lot lower, but it also comes with this misconception that, okay, well, if we just get this platform up and invite people, then Community will just start happening. Just add water. Make
1: community. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, doesn't work that way.
1: And I think, look, you're exactly right. And I think it does. It returns us to that, the all-important why that I know, you know, you understand innately and and many in our space do. You've got to be asking those questions about why are we gathering? What is it for? What is the culture we're trying to achieve together and produce? What is the shared sense making that's going to happen? Why are we better and different together than apart? What is present Because this community now exists that wasn't present before. What knowledge are we generating? What value are we generating? All those sort of why and strategic questions. I think, yes, they come to the fore quicker in a way. As you say, when you have these low barrier to entry tools and you're like, I've got the stuff in play now, got the infrastructure. Where's everything else? And it's because you don't have that social infrastructure yet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we have lots to talk about. But actually, before we go any deeper... And there are some topics I know we're going to talk about that get a little bit more in the weeds of kind of technical community management and some of the more advanced stuff that you've really centered your work and content around. You've been doing this work for a very long time. You've done the community industry, as we said, with Australian community managers and Swarm. You're a published academic in the space. So you have some really deep experience. Can you maybe just start by sharing your quick kind of background so people have context on where you're coming from and your experience with community?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll give you kind of the quick tour. So I got into community as an early adopter of the internet. So I was over in America, I, obviously I'm, I'm Australian, you can tell that, over in New York, starting to be a performing artist, um, round about when the World Wide Web was taking off, so sort of, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And I was exposed to these tools as a user and actually got involved in a lot of online communities early in the day and was really fascinated by them, even though I wasn't a technologist, the theatre student. And I was like, this is amazing. And I can connect with people in these new ways and we can talk and build these sort of cyber places and cyberspaces and was really just enchanted by the possibility of all of that. So that's when I first experienced online communities and kind of got really fell in love with their possibilities and their potential. When I came back to Australia and decided to transition out of working professionally as an artist, I was already sort of picking up unofficial work in this space as a, a back in the day as, you know, sort of web admin or community manager of a sort, even though it wasn't really called that. And then I got my first sort of real community job working for a company called Arts Hub here in Australia, which is a creative arts industry publication. And it was an editorial job and a community job. It was about audience building. It was about membership and engagement. It was a paid subscription business. And that really further hooked me into the fact that this is what I was really into and wanted to do. I was really interested in building relationships around ideas and purposes and practices and things like that. And I got my first, I guess, big gig as a community manager looking after Lonely Planet, the travel guide publishers. So I ran their Thorn Tree community and helped them transition into social media when things like Facebook and Twitter were coming along. I was there for a lot of years, sort of overseeing their community ecosystem, and that was a really incredible gig. I absolutely loved it. And it was really the blooding of me, the sort of the baptism of fire as a community manager, because Thorn Tree had been around a good 10 years before I took that job. So I was walking into an incredibly established community as a newcomer, total newbie, and had to, you know, really keep my ego in check and learn how to, what this community was, what its culture was, how to best serve it and where I could fit in with all of that. So that was great work. And then over the years, I've worked with a lot of different companies, Invato, Australia Post here. So governments, corporate startups, working internally to lead community as a function. And these days I work as a consultant and somewhere in between there, somewhere along the line, I uh Realised that I was the only person that I knew that was doing this kind of thing, but there obviously had to be others out there. So much like you, started to do some outreach and wanted to talk to others and build that community of practice. So I held a community roundtable for folks like us back in the Lonely Planet days. So this is around 2009, 2010. Gathered a group of folk that were doing it in our region. We had people coming from ABC, from Redbubble, the creative marketplace, from Foxtel, the big cable company here. So really diverse, again, diverse group of folk we kept meeting and that kept growing and that ultimately became Swarm and ACM. And so I've, um, in parallel with my own sort of working career, I've been helping nurture the industry here and we've sort of you know, created our own community builders, which you know all about, to support folk here and their practice through training and resources and things like that. So yeah, I've been in it for a bit and always really interested in the academic side as well. So, you know, what's what are the, the social science behind what's happening? What are the theories at play that we see? What are some of the different angles on the industry side that we're sort of immersed in
0: Absolutely. And I know you teach on the university side as well and are developing community management curriculum there too. So you've really done it all.
1: <laughs> bit by bit. Yeah. I, th- I guess it's the feeder the feeder pe- pe- performer in me. I like to try on all the roles.
0: <laughs> I like it. Yeah. It's an interesting time right now in the Australian community management space, right? You were just telling me about how there's some new laws in effect around trolling and things online. Can you speak a little bit about what's happening? Because I think it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, Australia is a really different kind of regulatory environment. We don't have enshrined free speech the way that someone like the US does, although it's certainly implied and there are aspects of our constitution where it plays a role. We don't have a Bill of Rights in the same way that the US does, for example. So our whole relationship to free speech and the internet is a little different and has been from the outset. So we've always had a few more laws governing what we can do and do online and how people can use these spaces. So, for example, there's already aspects of our criminal code here that cover the fact that you can't abuse or threaten or harass people using what the law calls a carriage service. So, you know, in ye olden times, the telephone. Hmm. These days, email, social media, the internet, etc.
0: It still says carriage service, though.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a carriage service. So that stuff already exists, but I guess doesn't always apply, doesn't or isn't always appropriate, and not everything obviously is or should be a, a criminal matter. So in an effort to address what is a global problem in terms of online abuse, particularly sort of hate speech, gendered hate speech, um, threats against marginalised communities, all this sort of the worst behaviour we do see online, a Australian eSafety Commissioner, and we have an eSafety Commissioner office, has sort of created a new bit of legislation with the government called the Online Safety Act. So this sort of endeavours to create a more healthy, less harmful environment for all Australians to engage online. But what it does do that's a little bit novel, so it does have some really good, I think, important protections around things like what is popularly known as things like revenge porn, so the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, things like that, really important pieces of legislation. But it's also got some extra provisions in there, which I believe are a world first, around trolling and abusive behaviour. So while it doesn't use the word troll, which I think is wise Mm -hmm. because it is a loaded controversial word that means a lot of different things, it does talk about abuse and serious harm and harassment through any mechanism. And it it does for the first time allow the government in conjunction with the safety commissioner here to issue fines and investigate reports of this stuff. So if somebody is experiencing that, they can actually Report to the platform first, so that's the obligation in the lead. You have to go and report that to the platform. But as we often know, that doesn't necessarily do the job or not in a timely fashion. So they've got a lot to deal with. So this allows them an extra mechanism and gives them some additional agency in that. So then the commissioner and the government here can actually go and investigate that and say, yeah, we think this meets the criteria of harm that is defined in this new law. And we're actually going to issue a fine and also we're going to ask that, that content be taken down. So trolling of a serious nature definitely falls under this and it's really designed for that type of stuff. Previously, our legislation primarily covered young people. and There is some really, I think, appropriately serious legislation in that regard. But it didn't really protect adults. And we know that, you know, adults are subject to this sort of stuff just as much as young people online. So it's a new law. What it means, I guess, as a community manager is that we're already pretty governance-minded here in Australia. We already, uh, we've got a lot of laws around things like defamation that we need to be mindful of. We are under Australian law, you know, kind of liable for a lot of this stuff that happens in our own communities, even if it's on a public third-party network like Facebook, for example.
0: Right, that's a super interesting aspect of community management there too.
1: It is, yeah. Yeah, so we don't have a Section 230, so uh, it's quite different. So there was a decision here in the courts a few years ago, a young man who experienced some abuse in a detention centre, and became a news story, media organisations wrote about it, posted those stories on social media, and basically didn't moderate the comments in a nutshell. Mm. So this is what I find interesting. You know, If they had been showing up to be an active steward of those spaces, then we might not be in the situation we're in. I, mean, I know it's not quite as black and white as that, but regardless, sure. they were in some cases incentivizing it for clickbait. So there were a lot of really problematic comments, defamatory comments in these media spaces in social media, you know, in the, the news pages on social media. And then this young man decided to take that to court and sue those organisations for defamation and for not doing enough to protect him. And he won, and it was upheld on appeal. So that's the, known in Australia as the voler ruling. And it means that from currently the norm, and maybe challenged at some point, is that yeah, if you're an organisation who has a Facebook page, a Facebook group, an owned community, same deal. You are accountable for what your users are saying. so you have an obligation to moderate proactively oh. as well as reactively and ensure that defamation, contempt of court, hate speech, these sort of things are not are not occurring. Wow. Now we would advocate that as best practice
0: anyway. Sure, yeah, you should be doing that anyway.
1: Yeah, of course that's important. Safety by design, right? But it did I guess it added a, a bit of a kick in the pants for those folk that weren't thinking about that or didn't prioritize it. Where it's a challenge, of course, and it's easy for me to say, well, it should be the way it's done. Of course, it should be the way it's done. It is recognizably hard, obviously, if you're a small business or you've got limited resources.
0: Or an individual who just started a Facebook group, right?
1: Or an individual, that's right, yeah. I think, but importantly, both that ruling and this new act don't need 24-7 moderation. You don't need to sort of panic about this stuff. It just sort of says, look, we need to see that you're making an effort. That's my layman interpretation. So I've see, we've seen cases go to court and situations happen where there have been problems, but the parties involved had some governance in play. They have been checking in. There has been some sort of moderation. And if problems arise, they're dealt with in a reasonable time frame. Yeah. It's when people don't act and are sort of seemingly kind of willfully absent that the real problems emerge. So I would say whilst it's, I'm not a huge fan of over-regulating this space because it definitely gets really sticky and very risky and problematic. I think by and large this sort of stuff is not so bad. I think that it does put a little additional onus on anyone who's kind of making the invitation or creating a community says you're going to have to be accountable to the culture that you create. And I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. As I said as a lot, but then it's on us as community, you know, community leaders to step up and make sure everybody has the tools and the mindsets and the skill sets to actually be able to do that.
0: Yeah. And for the people who are participating in these spaces, it holds them accountable because if they can get fined or in trouble legally for something they did on the internet, you have to do some pretty extreme stuff for that to happen to you today in America. But I can honestly see rules like that coming to America and coming to other countries because in a lot of ways, they're logical. It makes sense. It's the same rules that you would have in a public space in person. Why is it any different online?
1: Yeah, that's right. Like, And it is important, obviously. We both know how important things like pseudonymity online is. It's incredibly important.
0: Right. That. Yeah. How do you track someone down if they're doing it on uh, an anonymous site? That's it.
1: So that's where things do get hairy, right? This legislation does have a provision that allows our eSafety Commissioner to go and compel the identity mm. of people, for example. And whilst it's easy for to, to sit here and say, yes, that really horrid troll who's doing this disgusting behavior online, maybe they should be tracked down. Well, okay, but what if that's a dissident, or what if that's you know somebody who's trying to hide from someone who's being abusive, or what if there's there's more going on there, right? So it's in, as you, yeah, as we know, it's never black and white, mm. and there's we've just got to be really careful with this stuff. So I think there's some good in these laws, and I do agree with you. I think it we may see it as a global trend will be a little petri dish for the rest of the world. Australia often is in a lot of ways, but I do think it's yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah. You just rely on Reddit users to do the investigative work of figuring out who anonymous people on the internet are. Here in
1: America, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that Reddit has just opened a new office here in Australia. So we'll, we'll, I'm sure that Reddit users will will help us out.
0: (laughs) It's wild what a group of people on Reddit can discover from like one picture of somebody that they found on the internet, and all of a sudden they know everything about them.
1: I know, and then it becomes an amazing Netflix documentary. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Cool. I'd love to dive into the topic of governance a little bit because this is a topic that you're one of the top experts in. And it's not something that's always talked about in depth in the world of community because it's not always the sexiest, right? We talk about engagement and growth and platforms and tools, but governance, well, you know, some people like... It
1: sounds boring. It does.
0: I'll, I'll cop that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like government something. So I guess on a high level, how do you define community governance? Well,
1: mm, it's a really good question. So I define it, I guess, as the system of mindsets and tool sets that help us make decisions and shape our culture. That's how I would define mm. it. So okay. the decision making is the important part. So governance, you know, we often associate it with regulation, moderation. Yes, that's right. all a part of it. But it's really about how do we make decisions that define who we are? Right? Where do we assign value? Is that a valuable activity? Is that not a valuable activity? Where do we, why do we incentivise or disincentivise certain types of behaviour? Where do we draw our lines? What is crossing the line? What is a step too far? And, and you know, how we even, so to me, even things like reputation and reward systems, um, the way we allocate social capital in our communities, that's a form of governance as well. It's really making choices about behaviour that best serves the purpose of our communities or best serves our community objectives and goals versus those that are going to be harmful or corrosive to that purpose in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would define it. And then, of course, yeah, you've got underneath all of that machinery of governance, all the tools that we use from community guidelines through to making decisions about when to, when to un- disinvite someone to a community, when to, when to ban them or terminate their account. But also just the how decisions are made on a daily basis. And I think that's something that's really interesting to explore from a community member point of view as well. I think we do tend to think about governance commonly as what we were just talking about, you know, legislation and laws. And, okay, so the poor community manager now also has to think about all these other bits and pieces, and yes, they do. But how can they engage their members or users potentially in assigning that value, in making those decisions, in drawing those lines? I think that's a really interesting question. So alternative governance models, participatory governance models, Things like community pact building, community constitution building, they're really interesting to me.
0: I love it. Yeah, I wonder if it's like a language challenge because like, yeah, you think about community governance and people do tend to think, okay, it's rules, guidelines, moderation standards. I like how you describe it. It's kind of the larger thinking on, I love that, like where do you assign value? What's okay? What's not okay? and, And what do those processes look like?
1: Yeah, governance has a lot of baggage as a word.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think
1: we also, we do sort of associate a lot with these big kind of languid institutions that are often a bit out of step with reality and you know, moving too slowly right. for our space. And and that's true largely. Yeah, I think it's, it can be a lot more dynamic than that. So yeah, I think it is a language challenge.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm seeing the world of community operations, what people have been calling it, growing a lot right now, which I think isn't all governance, but has a lot to do with governance and setting up systems and kind of backend processes. A lot of it is is a little bit like how do we scale up our processes and operations. But I think a lot of it is things like how do we assign value to things? How do we make decisions? What is a process when something bad happens?
1: Yeah. And how you manage risk, you know, risk is again kind of maybe slightly more sexy than governance to talk about, but Yeah, that's a huge part of it as well. And it's thinking about risk multidimensionally. So yes, of course, all the straightforward risk stuff, you know, we want to make sure people aren't bullied, that there's not really toxic or illegal content floating around, that people are having a good experience. But risk is, you know, what about the risk to, is there a risk to community culture that's happening? You know, are there behaviours, overall collective behaviours that are not serving us as a community? What are the operational risks involved? Of course, there are plenty. So yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it. And maybe it will become a more concretize kind of part of community ops overall.
0: Right, right. Is governance something that really only large companies and established communities need to be focused on? Or is it something that a company who is just starting their community for the first time should also be thinking about?
1: It's another really good question. I I think that everyone needs to think about it. I really do. I've seen a lot of startups, a lot of young communities, a lot of Small companies, individuals even get tripped up by not thinking about it and stuff has happened. So I think it's really important. To me, I would really clump it in with that strategic thinking process that right at the beginning, when you're thinking about what you want to build, why, who it's for, how you want to design those conditions that we talked about earlier, to me, that's where it starts to fall. So in designing the kind of engagement that's going to serve your objectives, um, the kind of experience that's going to serve your objectives, where does safety, where does risk, where does value assignment, into all of that, how do we define who we are and how does that extend to how we make these sort of decisions? So, and I think having some you know, you can have the MVP version, you can have a lean governance, right? Of course, and that's all you typically need at that stage. You should let it grow organically and co create it with your members or your users over time, but you need to start somewhere. And I think it's, it does get really hard to retrofit, it really does. And so, it's important to think about at the outset in those terms, and then have a couple of simple processes in play that don't need to be huge and cumbersome. And involve, if it's the type of community that you've got, involve your people in it and think about how they can go on that journey with you.
0: Absolutely. What does that MVP look like? If a company is just starting to put together governance program for their community today, what are the key elements that they should have in there?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think certainly to have some clear, like definitive consensus answers around what behaviour is acceptable, what's not. And to have that somehow codified in those simple ways that you talked about, you know, so community guidelines, those sort of things. I think I would advocate for, again, if it's suitable to the community, it doesn't always fit the context, but some sort of community constitution or a social contract where rather than a bit of some guidelines, which we know, you know, the people that are inclined to break them don't usually read them something that everybody can kind of buy into. So if you are building a community from scratch, it can be even easier to get those founding members on board with that than sort of coming into a very well-established space. And I think some clear internal processes about, okay, if we've decided what's acceptable and what's not, well, then what happens if the not happens? (laughs) So what Mm -hmm. happens if individuals are doing things that is not in line with its social contract? Or what happens if community is going in a direction that is not aligned with that value that we've assigned? You have to have given some thought to what will actually happen and have mapped out that process in a simple way. So it could be, okay, we're gonna have a conversation with these people, this is where this line is if the account actually has to be terminated or withdrawn. Just, again, it can be simplistic to start with, but just need to have some steps so the improvising in every moment. You can contextualize it, of course, it's gonna be flexible. But you don't want to be in a position, particularly if there's more than one person involved and they might handle things a little differently. Some level of basic standardization that everybody's bought into and understands and sort of on the same page about. And then that can, of course, evolve and iterate and should over time.
0: You said something about at the start of that, there's kind of a difference between guidelines and something more of a constitution. What's the difference between those two things and what does a constitution for community look like?
1: So I think guidelines are typically created by a community owner some kind, whether that's the community manager or the founder or who perhaps some sort of influential member, but usually it's the people creating the community. So I think right from the start, it's seen as an external object, an external artifact in a way. And even if that those people are really switched on to their community vibe, their culture, they know who they're building for and why, and they're well-created guidelines, they're not overly legal and boring. And, you know, sure. you can make them compelling, of course. And they are important from a legal point of view to have these sort of things. But I just, there's not going to be a sense of ownership usually from those members or users around that document because they didn't make it. And it's not necessarily reflective of their values. It's more about the obligations and the requirements of the company or the organization. So it does have to be there, but it's often quite ineffectual as a governance document for those sort of reasons. I and mean, we know with platform guidelines as well, they're there more, for, more to protect the platform than the other users necessarily. So, whereas some sort of other, Artifact, other document, you know, whether it's a video or a written document or whatever form it takes, and it can be completely multi-format depending on the community. Something that can enshrine and codify literally the spirit of a contract. So we all, as founding members or early members of this space, kind of agree that this is why we're here. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we stand for. This is what we don't. Those sort of things, and we're sort of going to take shared accountability over creating that culture that that speaks to that. So it's not foolproof. It's no panacea. Of course, it's not a bad behaviour. Still going to happen. Problems are still going to happen. risks will still be present. But making it aligning it more with intrinsic motivation and making it less of this kind of motherhead uh, sort of uh, motherhood document on a wall can be a more effective instrument. I've found, and yeah. it can be a really a nice early engagement exercise that you do with your founding members or your early users.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I've heard companies refer to it like a, as a manifesto sometimes. It kind of speaks to their larger vision and why they're all gathering. There's also like community values I've seen. And we actually just went through the process of creating a new set of community values for CMX with our members because we always had kind That's of organizational values. And I kind of think of it as like guidelines and rules often speak to what not to do. It's like don't promote in here, don't be rude to each other, don't whatever it is, like but values and these kinds of constitutions or manifestos, whatever you want to call it, speak to how you want people to show up. It's like, do this. like Be generous, be kind to each other, be supportive, be ambitious, whatever it is that you want to use to essentially articulate the culture that you're trying to create together.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. And giving those community members a, a stakeholder in that. And I think that's terrific.
0: Yeah. I love that. And it's something that comes up a lot for me as well when I talk to companies because they tend to leave culture to just kind of create on its own. Or they might have an idea of what they want to create and they try to just do it when they're participating and modeling, it, which is great. You have to model it. But to actually take what you're trying to create and put it into words and to do that with your community, it has a very unique effect, I think, on telling people, just being upfront and obvious about this is what makes this space unique and different and valuable and and this is how we want you to show up here.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It is uniquely powerful. It seems so simple, but yeah, it's incredibly powerful to actually just to do that piece and to do it cooperatively and to kind of co-constitute that with your members in whatever form it takes is very powerful. And yeah, it is often, I think, a little bit confronting for people sometimes as, as an organization to do that. And it, it's useful as an instrument because it can expose some of those things. It can expose and highlight areas where, oh, maybe we're not, maybe we're not actually as sort of clear or secure on our value or our culture. Because the minute I think about having this conversation with members, I get a bit nervous for these reasons. But that doesn't need to be scary. That can be an opportunity to figure out, okay, well, why, why, why is why do we feel that way? What's nervy yeah. about that? You know, are we maybe not aligned as as we should be, or where's the gaps we need to fill? And it's definitely that. an accountability measure. Right? It helps us keep, helps all of us keep each other accountable. So I think it's naturally more of a kind of community binding mechanism than the rule stuff, which, yeah, does have to be there. But as you say, it's typically focused on the negative and everyone's instinctively more attracted to the positive and the animating.
0: Totally. Yeah. And as you were talking too, it gave me the thought. I wonder if you've seen this in terms of creating your governance plan and essentially going back to what you said, where, it will lay out things that you don't want people to do and think, you know how to respond to someone breaking a rule. But governance should also speak to like what are the actions that are valuable and that you want to reward. So in that MVP, would it make sense? And have you seen companies do this where they put like, okay, if someone breaks the rules, do this, 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 this and this. But here are the actions that are really positive, that we want to look for. And if someone takes this action and take this positive action to respond to them and thank them or reward them or send them swag or ways basically put into a governance model, this is how we're going to reward good behavior in the community.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a great way to think about it. And I think it does help us stop thinking about governance as sort of vortex of bad stuff, right? It's actually it's all about reputation. It's even things like gamification, all that side of community and community building and growth and engagement. To me, in a way, is really smooshed up inside governance. It's all about rewarding or incenting or disincenting behavior, right? So you've got to make those calls. And I'm currently doing my PhD in artificial intelligence and online communities, which mm. seems unrelated to what we're talking about. But one of the things I'm investigating, for Very example, related. is because <laughs> is, uh, I'm a nerd. Are there ways, you know, as we increasingly use things like automation and algorithms in communities, of course, they can be really helpful. They can be really problematic as well, especially if we don't control them. So, how could we automate some of the steps you just described? So, if we can get really specific and clear on what are the types of actions, the types of behavior that, yeah, we want to value versus we want to, well, not punish, but, you know, want to disincentivize, want to call out in some way, we can automate that in a perhaps in a more clearer, more authentic, more useful way than automating bands and things like that. It's good. It's less, a little bit less binary. Automation by design is fairly binary, but we can make it a little bit more nuanced if we can get specific about actions and behaviour. So I think it has absolutely belongs in a governance model. Reward, recognition, as you say, trigger these steps. You know, how to. this is sort of a shout out. This is maybe there's certain activities and behaviours that can lead to somebody being member of the week or appointed a community champion, or, you know, there's a million ways to do it, obviously, in line with the rest of the way that you work your particular community.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm happy to go down this rabbit hole because I think uh, <laughs> automation and AI a
1: rabbit
0: is hole. <laughs> mostly what this podcast is. It's just one rabbit hole leading to <laughs> another rabbit it. hole.
1: Yes. The, Master, the masters community of rabbit, rabbit, rabbit hole. That would be a
0: good <laughs> one. Yeah, <laughs> But I mean, AI just keeps coming up in my conversations and community today. And a lot of people are asking about it. I just had a call yesterday with a startup that's building some new tools for AI-driven moderation and developing new models to be able to identify toxic messages and behavior and things like that. So as someone who's researching this deeply, just what are you seeing as the biggest kind of progress that's being made right now when it comes to AI for community and the biggest problems? Because at the core of these conversations always lies, well, how much of this should be automated? Isn't the role of the community builder to be building these personal relationships, doesn't it take away the actual thing that makes being highlighted by the community valuable if people know it's a robot doing it and not a person doing it? So yeah, I guess I'm looking for your, your summary on where are we at today when it comes to AI-driven community building and where are we going?
1: Yeah. So you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's, so community is relationships. Yeah, I think you once said, and I've stolen this quote more than once, that the atomic (laughs) unit of community is a relationship.
0: Yes. I (laughs) I tell that
1: to my students. I I attribute it to you. Yes. Yeah, right. So it's it's I got
0: one in your class. All right. (laughs) You
1: definitely did. You definitely did. So it's all about the relational. Yeah. So, and it's all about context. And this is the chief, the foundational problem, at least, with AI, which is obviously a broad, a whole bunch of technologies and tools. You know, we say AI means a ton of different things. Uh, It's automation, it's algorithms, it's intelligent agents and chatbots, things like that, and that that bunch of other stuff. It's not great at context, not yet anyway. It's getting Mm. better, but it is not terrific at context. And I think because community is two things fundamentally, it's relational and it's contextual, AI is not a great, not an automatic and natural fit. Now there are, of course, as you said, certain sort of burdensome tasks in community. I mean, I remember when I was, working on Thorn Tree back at Learning Planet, we would have to spend hours deleting hundreds and hundreds of spam, you know, spammers and, and sort of the kind of random folk online and that. It was like not stuff that easily could have been automated, but wasn't the technology wasn't quite there yet and was you know, taking up time that we absolutely could have and should have been reinvesting into the community in other ways. So there was things like that. There's the low-hanging burdensome fruit that is particularly helpful when you can get that automated out of that stuff and kind of release that burden. I do think the releasing burden line has become part of the AI discourse, and it's not always, it's sometimes a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Like, yeah, we want to do this and free up people to do other great things. That's wonderful in theory. And I think a lot of people are sincere when they say that, but it is often about displacement and productivity and other things that may or may not be relevant for your community. So, thinking about, let's look at something like personalization. So, automation can be, you know, we know of certain aspects of personalization can be very useful in certain types of communities, for example, you know, kind of creating, really creating or curating individualised handrails for what that member experience is like. Very useful in things like customer support communities to some degree, other communities that might be more marketing centric. But personalization in a community like, I don't know, a mental health forum, of which there are many in Australia, we have some really beautiful and phenomenal kind of online communities around mental health part of why those users go there, and the research shows this, is the experience of the commons. They want to go there and actually just sort of marinate and sit and say, wow, there's hundreds of other people having a similar experience to me. I don't feel alone. I can find answers here. And so, even if I don't ask a question, it actually just makes me feel better to read all of these stories. And I want to go and forage for those in my own way, in my own time. I don't necessarily want to type in word depression and have you try to figure out, these three will be the best posts for me in this situation. Maybe mm. for some that would be helpful, but it's more complex than that. It's way more human than that. So and so you see a lot of communities who are coming at things from sort of a marketing paradigm, which is relevant in a lot of cases, but not all. And they're applying those sets of logics to communities that are about very different things. So where we see the problems is where you have what I would call this logic Misalignment: So one set of logics is trying to butt up against a whole other set of community logics that doesn't make sense. So even what we think of as efficient or productive in a certain community might be very different from one community to another. So an AI is all about usually typically mm. driving efficiency, productivity, having right. to do it quicker or better or faster or at more scale? So those are some of the risks. And of course, there's a lot of risks around context and misinterpretation and, and things like that from a useful point of view, from a helpful point of view, the the moderation stuff is doing quite well. There is still a lot of, there is still a long way to go on context, whether it's language or slang and nuance and all those sort of things. There's a lot of gaps there. And also things like...
0: Still a lot of gaps.
1: Yeah, there is. And, you know, good example, obviously, you know, when marginalized communities often will reclaim language as a form of resistance to power and resistance to oppression or abuse. So if the, the queer community reclaims the word queer, right? But then the word queer might also still be used in an abusive or slurring context. So you can't really, you have to go beyond the word itself. And again, AI is really not great at that. So where we see those problems happening, there are, it's often because there aren't community thinkers or community designers or representatives of those communities necessarily involved in the creation of that tech. So relieving burden, we're going really well. Communities working at scale. This is another area that's kind of got some interesting developments. So if you look at something like Reddit with bajillion people on it, communities of that kind of size, um, or look, even just hundreds of thousands of users, with certain types of machine learning, you can do some really interesting things in terms of uncovering hidden patterns, hidden data sets that can be really interesting and insightful for your work as a community strategist or a community builder. Things that are happening that show connections that you you can do some social network mapping within your community and uncover, oh, wow, there's a real relationship between this cluster of people and this cluster of people. I wonder what that means. Can we support that in some way? Should we know about that? All that sort of stuff. And just even potentially using that data as a predictive tool to say, look, these are the trends. This is what's been happening in the last few years around content, around behaviour, around topics that are discussed, whatever it might be. Therefore, extrapolating this is what might be happening in the future. It's not 100% reliable, of course. But when you've got big data sets, which machine learning loves, then you can do some really interesting things in terms of uncovering hidden gems that can be kind of really insightful tools for you and Mm -hmm. tools that might point you in useful directions for the future. But there's a lot of ground in the middle there where people are sort of trying different things and it's little interesting experiments, stuff not working so well. So, yeah, it's a really rich space. One of the things I'm hoping to do at the end of my research is to try to build more contextual AI or see if that's even possible. That's something I I think people are trying to do it regardless. So my personal objective is to make sure that people that understand and appreciate and support community are involved in that conversation. We've seen AI do a lot of damage to communities offline and online in a lot of different ways. create a lot of harm through algorithmic bias and things like that. So how do we make sure that's not happening or reduce that risk in these contexts?
0: Yeah, yeah. Here's a big, scary question. (laughs) Are we going to get to a point where a community will be built in the future that a person did nothing to build? Just like automated systems, rewarded the right things, made introductions, and started conversations, moderated, and actually built a thriving community that's completely AI-driven.
1: Super great question. It's probably how I should start my thesis when I finally publish it. (laughs) Actually, I really want to interview, I I want to interview like Watson from IBM. I want to interview some AI about community just to see what happens.
0: Just see, yeah.
1: My honest answer right now is that I think that we will. (laughs) And I want to be really clear, I don't know. I don't think that we're anywhere near any kind of singularity. Machines aren't taking over the world. Intelligent machines aren't taking over the world. Machine intelligence is a long way off, if ever. And I think we will but my caveat is, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a good community. I don't think it's going to be the kind of community we want to build. I think it's going to come out of market pressure, out of a whole bunch of other things. I think that mm. people will try to do this and they'll largely succeed in getting it to a point that we would look at and go, yep, yeah, that's a community, <laughs> I think. And, you know, how do we know that? That's a whole other question. You know, Do we survey those members and see if they feel a sense of community, what's going on there? But yeah, I think I think we will. But I don't think it's going to be very extensible for a lot of contexts. So yeah. transactional communities, 100%, right? Where people are showing up and perhaps marketplace communities, things like that, where there's really functional, informational, transactional needs. I think that that is going to happen more quickly for a bunch of reasons. But I think the communities more of the kind of described, you know, if it's a mental health community, things like that, that's a lot more challenging. It doesn't mean people aren't going to try. They will definitely try. But I don't know that it's a good thing. Is it the community we want to build?
0: I don't know. I mean, because like you take like community practices themselves and we know that it can be used for good or evil or positive impact or negative impact, depending who you're asking, right? Like the Nazis were an incredibly engaged community. And I mean, it even makes me think about uh, from the recent US election where we had... I think their stories are basically just like, I think it was like Russian operatives or something that would create fake events on Facebook and create fake protests around essentially fake issues. And people would show up and they'd protest and no one would have any idea who organized it. They just saw the event and they can almost get those kinds of movements down to a science where like they know how to trigger people And so, yeah, maybe it's like by default, the worst applications are easier than building intentional, positive, meaningful, long-term community. But we're seeing people kind of get this concept of how do you organize people down to more of a science. And in theory, the closer it gets to a science, the easier it is to automate it and have robots be able to do the same thing.
1: That's it. Yeah. Is it reducible to to something that's that can be yeah, yeah, computational, right? Is it? Can it be binarized or datafied in some way? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, and I actually I think that's an interesting idea, and I I would agree with what I think what you're trying to say there. That I think that some of the the negative spin on the playbook can be probably more easily automated in some way, but if it's a whole different intention, right? The objectives intention. are a little more sure. clinical and forensic. They're like, oh, I just. Need roughly this amount of people to do this thing at this time, and like how they feel yeah. about it is of less concern to me. Yeah, I just need right. these. Things what to if happen. we use
0: that same tool to get people to protest climate change? You know, they <laughs> yeah, show up for yeah, things that yeah. we perceive as positive, then yeah. then we'd be like, oh, this is incredible.
1: Yeah, I was involved in a paper with a couple of scholars, Dr. Jennifer Beckett, Dr. Verity Trott here in Australia, late last year, and we were looking at some of the sort of uh, misogynistic, uh, sort of quite quite violently misogynistic communities online on a particular platform, and we were actually analyzing them for sense of community. So we went through and we coded them and we sort of wanted to basically see, are they healthy as communities? Because it's easy. And this is one of the challenges with automation. You know, if you label something as toxic, well, it's toxic perhaps to wider society. You know, our norms, our ethics might say, that's not cool. We don't like that. That's not acceptable. But within that community, it's not at all toxic. It's who we are, what we value, what we believe. That's right. So, and sure enough, They actually had a really strong sense of community, you know, (laughs) all the boxes, you know, belonging, membership, agency, all the, you know, all trust, It's amazing peer support networks within these communities. So if you objectively, if you take the subject matter out, you're like, that's a great community, right? It's doing everything correctly. And there's a community manager in there who's making it all happen. So, but obviously to a wider ecosystem, it can be corrosive and problematic. So... I think that's a whole interesting area as well. Is, you know, how do we maybe as we look at the evolution of community management, how do we as specialists start to help work with people that are trying to work toward? Greater social harmony or ferret out some of the, the more harmful, harm doing elements of, of society. Can we apply our community superpowers to understanding them better and to unpacking them and to perhaps dismantling them even?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do people get recruited into extremist groups? It's the same programs. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And belonging, you know, which you know all about, is a big part of that.
0: Absolutely. It's almost always because they could not find a sense of belonging in general society and felt outcast and they kept looking for groups to fit into until eventually they found the extreme one. that was like, yeah, we'll take you.
1: <laughs> yeah, you'll do. Yeah, no, but yeah. you're right, you're right. And they feel that sense of, you know, all the things, that, again, all the language we would use, they feel validated. There's, there's an invitation made. There's a, there is often a social contract. There's clear Absolutely. value assignment about what we, who we are. There's a strong internal narrative. There's all those sort of things at play that, yeah, we look to cultivate proactively in our communities.
0: Interesting stuff. Food for thought. Well, at, <laughs> <laughs> As always, we go down a couple rabbit holes, and I got to like one tenth of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about today. So, looks like you're going to have to come back on the podcast in the future and continue these conversations.
1: Anytime, Mr. Sphinx, anytime.
0: This is juicy stuff. <laughs> they were fun
1: rabbit holes. Thank you for rabbit yeah, holes.
0: They're, they're all rabbit holes are fun. That's, that's <laughs> what makes them rabbit holes. Well, as we come to the end of the episode, I wrap up every interview with a series of rapid-fire questions that I have ready for you here. So I'll ask the questions quickly and you'll answer them quickly. Do my best. You ready? Yep, you let's ready to go. Do this? All right. Number one, if you could only eat one kind of food for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: I'm going to go with the humble noodle in any form, like laksa spaghetti. I just, noodles. I'm noodle obsessed. Ah,
0: you... You kind of broke the question. You went for a category, a I genre did, I of did. food. Well played.
1: Noodles are my thing.
0: Well, there's so many things I could qualify as noodles as well. I suppose if I
1: had to pick if a singular form of noodle, I might go with laksa.
0: What is laksa?
1: It's a Malaysian curry dish, curry soup. It's incredible. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. yes.
0: That's right. Yes, okay, that's that's your favorite noodle.
1: Pretty amazing, yeah. Spaghetti bolognese, can't go past either. I'm a vegetarian, so veggies, spaghetti bolognese. But yeah, noodles, right. noodles of all the kinds.
0: Good answers.
1: Even yeah, two minute noodles. I'll take them all.
0: <laughs> any any sort of noodle. <laughs> what about a pool noodle?
1: Yes, don't have a pool right now, but
0: totally up for pool noodles. <laughs> all right. Next question. Uh, what's your favorite book to give as a gift to others?
1: oh, oof, oof. I was listening to you talk about books on the podcast recently, and like you, I have overread nonfiction, particularly because I'm doing a PhD, so I read a ton of nonfiction. I need to read more fiction again. I used to read sci-fi a lot as a kid. Right now, though, you know what? I've given a lot in the last year and encourage everyone to read. It's a book called Sand Talk from Tyson mm. Yunkaporta. So, Sand Talk: How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Tyson mm. Yunkaporta is a leading Aboriginal scholar and Appalach man here from Australia incredible dude, really interesting, kind of like a rock star. Just amazing book about Aboriginal knowledge, Aboriginal culture, in particular, things like the qualities of sustainable systems and kind of how kinship pairs. And here's this great quote that I thought you'd like about the, I'm going to butcher the quote, but the idea is that the most enduring way to store data is between two people. Mm. Right? (laughs) He's a fascinating guy, totally like as a community builder. I think it's a gold mine. And just as a human on the planet in the 21st century, it's also a gold mine.
0: Wow. So, yeah,
1: he's awesome. So, I've been uh, both gifting and recommending that book to a lot of people.
0: Sand talk. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah, I think you'd love it it. immediately after this conversation. (laughs) All right. Next question In one minute, Sherry, wildest community story? Okay. Uh,
1: it's wild, but I think my first true online community is fairly wild. So I was a member of X Files Anonymous back in 1993.
0: X Files Anonymous, yeah. So you know, the, the,
1: one of the fan communities of the X Files, the old TV show. And hey, it's where I met my husband. So wow. that was a pretty wild story. <laughs> I won't go into all, all right. of those details, but. We met and romanced online. Um, this is before that was sort of done. We actually made the newspaper both in America. He's an American, a former American, America and in Australia because that was so novel. It was, I think the headline right. was like, you know, Australian-American mean on the information superhighway. It was really <laughs> funny. We I were next that. to like Tickle Me Elmo in the paper <laughs> just to give you an idea of when this was.
0: Love it, yeah.
1: And, you know, we had like a... Oh, after, and after he proposed to me, we did a, a staged proposal in our IRC channel for the community.
0: I love it. I was going to say, was this an IRC? Or yeah, BB it was or? a BBS.
1: <laughs> it was an old, old forum and an IRC community spin-off. It had a little ecosystem. It. And then some of the people involved in the show came and like joined the IRC proposal and stuff. So that was all pretty wow. amazing. That was really special. And I'm still friends with a lot of those folk.
0: That's really freaking cool. <laughs> That's a great answer to that question. <laughs> all right. All right, next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities?
1: A lot of these of my go-tos have been shared already on your podcast for other people, which is great. That's all good. So I'm going to go with another one that I use a lot, particularly with my communities of students who are often, you know, they're not really in the mood to engage necessarily. They're tired. They're overworked. Pets. Sharing the pictures of oh, your
0: pets. Yeah.
1: You can't so really you get it is a good hack, right? And whenever
0: engagement's down, just say the word pets, question mark, and it'll, just, <laughs> oh, it'll be a hundred pictures in a minute and everyone exactly. will love each other.
1: Yes. And if we're talking about synchronous sort of stuff, um, if I'm ever like losing the room, I'll spin my laptop around and my cat Gambit likes to drape herself around my laptop. So she's usually sitting behind it. So I'll spin it, spin it around and just have Gambit stare at people and immediately everyone's like, oh my God, cute. And they wake up.
0: That's, That's right. great. <laughs> I love it. So
1: pets, Pets. very friends of any form.
0: Pets and food are like the silver bullet of community engagement. Just when in doubt, (laughs) pets and food. (laughs) Everyone has something to say then. All right, good one. Next, have you ever worn socks with sandals?
1: (laughs) No, but as an eccentric myself, I definitely don't judge.
0: Okay, so not your cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. You understand why. Totally, I'm like,
1: if it's comfortable, rock it.
0: Noted, all right. Next question: Who in the world of community would you most like to take for lunch?
1: Oh, well, you and I have already had lunch.
0: We had lunch. <laughs> Can't be me.
1: Uh, I'd love be to be dead say- or
0: alive, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you added that. I was just going to say uh, probably some of the early community organizers, like like Saul Alinsky, like from, from mm. the U. S., like the Godfather of like community organizing, would be really interesting. And even people like Jane Jacobs, the amazing mm-hmm. kind of urban designer and thinker, who understood our relationship to place in a really profound and incredible way, they would be incredible to hang out with. And I'm going to say a controversial choice, if anyone knows me, Mark Zuckerberg.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that is controversial. Yeah. You want to have it all sit down with him. Yeah, think. that's right.
1: When to have it, Give him a talking tip, no, I'm just well,
0: kidding.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan, uh, as anyone who follows sure. me on social might know, of Facebook and of, of Mark Zuckerberg as, a, as an individual. I'm sure, obviously, not alone and I'm not special in that way. But I think it'd be really interesting to try to uncover what his brain's doing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and talk to him about his understanding of community. Mm. I just think that'd be really, that'd be a worthy lunch if someone made that invitation to me, I would definitely that'd be go. that
0: interesting. And funny that that was your choice because my last interview was with Howard Reingold, who you know, oh, I'm hey, sure. I know I yep. it was awesome. And that was his answer was to sit down with Mark and, and Cheryl and have a talk. Have a <laughs>
1: chat. Yeah, like have a, a real chat. Would like to have About, that chat.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> similar <laughs> vibe.
1: Yeah. I love yeah, it. Yes. And Saul
0: Linsky, Rules for Radicals. That's another book that I think every community builder should read. I learned yeah, so much sure, right? from that book. And Jane Jacobs, what's the name of her book again?
1: Oh, it's about the...
0: Design of Cities.
1: Yeah, like Life and Death of the Great American Cities. Yes, or, yeah, exactly. She's that's incredible. If right. yeah, I, I can cheat and add one more, Thankfully, I, I already am good friends with this person, so we do have lunch sometimes, and that's um, the amazing John Coat. So one of the OG community manager who led the well mm-hmm. for so many years, You know, knows Howard well. Um, incredible dude with incredible stories. And just, you know, if you want to get a plug, like an automatic hit of... What the web was like at that era and what community building was like then. He's an amazing man to hang out with. And his kind of principles of what he calls cyber in keeping are still hmm. like completely relevant today.
0: Hmm. Amazing. I group. liked that a lot. Sounds like similar vibes to Howard. That was our whole conversation was just basically like, what was it like? Was it like back then? <laughs> How did it feel? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great one. Maybe we'll have him on uh, as a guest as yeah, well. Yeah, he's ace. All right. Next question. Um, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of?
1: Oh, man, I don't even know. I don't even know if I am. A, I guess you could call all of the, it's a bit of a cheat again, but all the theater communities I've been involved in all over, mm. over time, I don't know if they're very weird, but we are an interesting bunch of people. So whenever you do a show together, and I've done a lot of them over the years and choreographed some and, you know, been involved in as a, production team and inside the show itself. You form a tribe really fast. It's like rapid fire community building. You come together around this purpose of this idea. You got to do a thing and you beg yourselves, you're vulnerable, you kind of go through this incredible baptism of fire and you end up being like, I'm going to be lifelong friends with this person. And sometimes you yeah. never see them again. But it doesn't exactly. diminish the intensity of the experience. That's right. And all of those communities, you know, have been unique and wild and fascinating and full of really amazing humans. So all of yeah. these different creative communities that I've been involved in.
0: I love that. And what's a community product or like technology that you wish existed?
1: So building on our conversation about AI, and I think we might get to this one day, but think about all the things that would have to happen for this to happen. It's really interesting. I want to be able to wake up and say to some sort of device, be it wearable or an assistant, how's my community doing today? Mm -hmm. And I want it to be able to answer and Mm -hmm. say... You know, they're okay. The vibe is a bit down, you know, they're feeling, the weight of the world, but they're doing good and here's what they made. And I want them Mm. to be able to answer that, that disembodied assistant. And obviously that takes a whole (laughs) bunch of stuff that doesn't exist yet at all, but maybe it will, maybe it will. I think Mm. that'd be, you know, to be able to have like a conversation with your community as an avatar would be incredibly interesting.
0: (laughs) I like it. Innovative. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's a question I didn't ask you that I should have? Good question. Aside from all the ones we didn't get to. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> it's not really a question, but I feel like I wouldn't mind tap dancing. I miss tap dancing, right? Um, I used to be a great tapper back in the day. <laughs> mm. And I feel like there's a whole lot of similarities between theater and community. So maybe a question about you know, what are those similarities? Well, how is working in the theater exactly like working in community? Mm. How has it been helpful?
0: I like that. What's your one-minute answer to that question?
1: Having to, like I said before, having to marshal a group of often strangers around something quickly and intrinsically is incredibly challenging, but you do it as a craft in that space constantly. You know, and improvisation is the other one. You know, Whether you're an, actually an improv person or not, if you train as an actor, you work your way around improv. Can I tell you, I use improvisational skills every single day of my life <laughs> and in community building constantly. Me too. Yeah, it's good, right? Just, you know, yes yeah. and it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I did three classes of improv, which were long classes. They were like three-hour classes, like twice a week for six weeks, I think each class was. So, oh, wow. It's like an intensive <gasps> workshop. Yeah, it was a lot. But I learned so many. And there's like all the games in improv. Every time we did a game, I'm like, this is genius for community but building. I, and is. then I forgot most of them, but some of them stuck with me. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. There's a lot of, there's some really good crossover, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It just like, I what one thing that Improv always did really well was it changed reality. It's like, here's these set of rules that now we have to work within. You're only allowed to say this. You're only allowed to respond in this way. Or here are things that now we all believe are common. And that just creates this very unique interaction between people that you couldn't have in actual reality. And I think that's what community does as well. It allows you to create a unique reality with a new set of rules and as a result, if you're really intentional about those, it can create a completely different sort of interaction or conversation than what's possible in broader society. Totally agree. Yeah. Cool. We sh- we'll have a whole conversation on improv next time, <laughs> yeah, too.
1: Absolutely. I think we need some community improv uh, tournament thing that we need to build. We uh, should, should
0: build it into our events at Swarm and CMX Summit, some improv classes. That's smart, actually. Well, maybe when we're in person again, improv virtually just doesn't sound fun. It's a bit harder. Last question for you: If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today, and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Yeah,
1: And Again, my cheat answer is <laughs> no. I can't say that in public. The good stuff's been taken, I think. So, and you know, you don't need to hear from <laughs> me the same stuff. Everybody, you listen says. to
0: this podcast too much. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? The good stuff's been taken. That's a good luck. Those last words.
1: I don't know. I'd probably say something. My one of the big lessons I've learned. As a performer, you you're in an industry that teaches you to be incredibly self scrutinizing, often in really harmful ways. And it took me a long time to move out of the the harmful and negative halo of that. I guess mm. about really a lot of self judgment and you know issues with self worth and self esteem and things like that. So too long I'm out of it now, thankfully, but it took me too long. So I think. Truly accepting yourself for who you are, it's like the most cliche thing in the world to say, but really being comfortable with the unique creature that is you and all you have to bring to the world. It's a big one. And have a relationship with an animal if you Mm. can. I think that's great. Remind you that the only species on the planet, we've got something to learn from all the creatures around us. Having a relationship with a dog or a cat or a snake, we've got some crazy creatures here in Australia. Yeah, hanging out with animals and other species is a really great, is a humbling exercise and a great way to learn and connect with nature and stuff. So yeah, have a relationship with someone that's not human.
0: I love that. Yeah, my cat reminds me all the time that I'm not the boss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <It's> Ditto. <dinner.
0: laughs> As I've been warding him off during this podcast, trying to keep him off the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, Vanessa, we're at the end of time. Lastly, anywhere that people should go to find you and continue to learn from you? Yeah,
1: so I'm a pretty big Twitter user still. So you can find me at my at my full name, Vanessa Paik, like Cake. Vanessa with an E. Paik is P-A-E-C-H. I have to spell it because it looks like Peach, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And my website www.vanissapake.com and also you know you can find Australian Community Managers online. That's a lot of the work that I do these days. So just look up Australian Community Managers and you'll find us on the internet and all of the socials.
0: Awesome. And go to Swarm. Swarm's coming up. So everyone should check out Swarm. It's virtual, right? So people can sign up from anywhere this year? Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, so Swarm is uh, similar but different to CMX. So we um, mm-hmm. we can be a bit more academic, which is kind of a cool compliment, I think. Obviously Absolutely. reflects its uh, programmers' interests. So we have people like Tyson who I mentioned his book. You know, He came last year and gave an amazing talk about all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's another great opportunity to hang out with awesome community builders just like Max.
0: Awesome. So yeah, just look up Swarm Conference. You'll find it online. Vanessa, you are incredible and a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and experience as always. Just deeply grateful for you coming and sharing all that with us today and all the work that you've done in the industry over many, many years and that you continue to do feels like we're in each other's corners all working toward really helping make this industry better and the impact you've had is, is immeasurable. So really appreciate you.
1: Oh, thank you, David. That means a lot. It really does. And you know, and ditto, I agree. I think we're all working towards something pretty cool and hopefully synthesizing all of this amazing knowledge and helping the generations to come who have some pretty big battles to fight, let's be honest.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so we gotta train the robots to uh, do it all for <laughs> that's us. That's
1: right. That's right. Or at least train the resistance army to take them down.
0: <laughs> right. That's right. We're good. We'll train some good robots and bad robots. That's to right. Just see what happens. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks, David. Well, thank you A so much,
0: Always. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands.